mean, it's still bad. I mean, that's the thing is it's still bad. It's just not the sky is falling horrific. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, April 20th. Today, Julia Yaffe joins me to talk about the aftermath of the Pentagon leak. How did some of the world's most sensitive classified documents end up in the hands of a 21-year-old gamer bro from Massachusetts? Julia tells us why, and why this leak might not be as damaging as the intelligence community once thought. And later, Teddy Schleifer joins Ben Landy to discuss whether Larry Ellison, the world's sixth richest man, can swing the Republican presidential race in 2024. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe to talk about what's next in the leaked Pentagon documents case. Julia, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. It's so sunny out here in LA. I'm in a good mood. Same in DC. Uh, The vitamin D is hitting hard. So Jack Teixeira, he's 21. He's Mm -hmm. in the Massachusetts Air National Guard. Apparently this guy trying to flex to his buddies and his gamer groups online But my question has been, since this broke, and I know you're in the weeds on this more than I am, how does a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman in Massachusetts get his hands on some of the most sensitive documents in the world? Well, there's a number of reasons. The first is that he served in a legitimate intelligence unit, which the Pentagon has just shut down. And that intelligence unit gathered real intelligence and had some support roles for our transatlantic stuff. The second answer is that in the U.S. military, we empower a lot of young people to do some really important things. Uh, As one of my sources pointed out, you know, there are 19-year-old sailors who take care of the nuclear reactors on our nuclear attack submarines. Mm -hmm. And that is not unusual. We empower a lot of young people to do really important things. And then the other thing is that in the US after 9-11, when the intelligence community got hammered for siloing information, you know, just hoarding it and not sharing it with other branches of the government, they were not able to put the puzzle together in time to avert 9-11. So different people had different parts of the puzzle, but they weren't talking to each other, sharing information, and they weren't able to put it all together in time. And so after 9-11, you know, the walls came down, it it became uh, easier to share information. And as a result, we get things like Jack Teixeira, but also Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, etc. Often these people who work in IT jobs or are kind of not almost support staff, but they need to do their job. They need access to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And that's how you get people who are not just young, but fairly low level, like Edward Snowden, like Chelsea Manning, like Jack Teixeira, getting access to really important and sensitive information and then leaking it. You know, these are not assistant secretaries of defense who are doing this, right? Right. Well, I think a big difference, though, here from Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden is, and correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't appear like this was a principled leaker who was trying to, for 
libertarian or national security purposes or transparency leak a bunch of stuff. It seems like he was just trying to impress his Discord group, Thug Shaker Central, and, you know, flex on them a little bit. Yeah, you're right on both counts. The first count is that the IC has been dinged also repeatedly for overclassifying things and just the government in general for Mm. overclassifying things. And we kind of talked about this a little bit when classified documents were found at Mar-a-Lago and then Mm -hmm. in Biden's former office and then in Mike Pence's home. And when you classify so many things to get anything done, you need to give people access to those documents, right? And then you just have too many people who have access to stuff just to do their jobs. And this kind of thing happens. As for Jack to share his ideology, yeah, it seemed like he was just trying to impress his buddies, his teenage buddies. Mm -hmm. If anything encapsulates this uh, intelligence breach, it's the fact that the 17-year-old, I think, who initially brought it outside of that group on Discord and put it on social media, he's now grounded. (laughs) Which, which, like, Like by his mom and dad? Yeah. Oh my God. Like, wait, is his Air Force plane grounded? Is that what you mean? Or his parents grounded? No, no, no. He's grounded, right? (laughs) Yeah. And and to me, that illustrates the mismatch between kind of the stakes and the people involved and what they were doing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's just such a disalignment. But yeah, the other thing, though, is Jack Teixeira does have an ideology. He did have an ideology. If we look at kind of where he was posting, some of the things he was shouting before he fired that gun, right? He was clearly quite conservative, Christian, pro-gun, racist, anti-Semitic, hung out in these chat rooms where people valorized Vladimir Putin as this kind of avatar of toxic masculinity. And I think there's a reason that, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Jack Posobiecs of the world have started rallying around him as a kind of hero because he clearly, there's clearly overlap between his ideology and theirs. That doesn't seem to be why he did this, but it's not like he has no thoughts on politics, if that makes yeah. sense. No, totally. I mean, it, it it seems like his Venn diagram overlaps a lot with the 4chan crowd, Nick Fuentes, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So by the time this podcast episode is airing, Teixeira has been apprehended. You know, his defense lawyer is coming up with some kind of defense. Uh, He's being held uh, in federal prison right now. What insight do we have into how he was tracked down? I mean, I know Bellingcat and the New York Times and Washington Post did some really good reporting. A bunch of people did some basically like open source intelligence work to find out (laughs) how this happened. And it was really an impressive demonstration of how OSINT research works. How did the feds track him down? Did they rely on these reports from the media? Uh, how did they do it? I imagine they were doing a lot of the same kind of stuff that journalists were doing in parallel. Uh, I don't know how they tracked him down. I think we'd have to see more from them, maybe in the form of an indictment. But you know, watching how the New York Times and the Washington Post went directly to that gamer community and started talking to them, the New York Times essentially just hired Eric Toller from Bellingcat and a bunch of other Bellingcat people. And they were, I mean, the fact that this hinged on a piece of granite uh, countertop, mm-hmm. right? Like that was mm-hmm. the key thing because Jack Teixeira's sister, I mean, I was hearing about this kind of from friends who were on the story before 
the New York Times published how they did this. But basically, Jack Teixeira's teenage sister has a very active Instagram and social media presence. Mm -hmm. And they were able to juxtapose the kitchen floor and the granite countertop from the background of Jack Teixeira's photos of these classified documents, right? Because he was just printing them out, taking them out, and then photographing them and uploading the photographs. And in the photographs, you could see certain things, right? Like people said, mm -hmm. oh, there's Gorilla Glue, there's a hunting magazine, blah, blah, blah. But there was also a kitchen floor in the background and a granite countertop. And mm -hmm. they matched it to his sister's Instagram, where you could see that same floor, that same granite tiling. And they basically, the New York Times and the feds got there essentially at the same time. What I also loved was that I think Teixeira's stepfather told the New York Times reporter who was there and tried to ask if he could speak to Teixeira. And his stepfather was like, oh, he clearly is in trouble. He's going to need a lawyer. And he said that basically that Teixeira had changed his phone number in the few days before his arrest, which is like, oh, buddy. Oh, man. You Screaming are out guilt. of your depth. <laughs> no, but also you're just so out of it. Like, that's not going to do it. And yeah, you're yeah, yeah. so out of your depth. And back to the, you know, this kid being grounded, right? It's like they're kids playing at adult mm -hmm. and just step on the wrong rake. <laughs> he, <laughs> he was definitely a rake stepper. Uh, <laughs> just to round this out, Julia, you have, you published a piece. They call me rake week. stepper. <laughs> they call me the rake stepper. Turn it up. We are definitely not 21-year-olds by making that reference, by the way. I think no, it's Edie old. Kamosi. I yes, think Edie I think Kamosi. you're right. I think you're right. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, just to round this out, Julia, you, uh -huh. you have a piece up on Puck from earlier this week where you basically do a little after-action assessment by talking to a bunch of people in the intelligence community about just how damaging these leaks were. And when I talked to you last last week when this happened, you know, I was like repeating what was in the media, but this is the worst leaks in Snowden or Chelsea Manning. Your reporting, though, shows that it actually could have been much worse and it wasn't as damaging. Is that right? Yeah. Although, you know, we don't only the Washington Post at this point has the full set of documents. The original tranche was like 53 documents. I have those. Everybody had them. But then it turned out that there was something like 400. And uh, mm. that 17 year old kid who's now grounded only gave them to the Washington Post and is refusing to give them to anybody else. And so there's going to be this drip drip. And actually, just before I got on this podcast, on this recording, we saw a headline from the Washington Post that Justin Trudeau said that Canada would never meet its NATO spending target of 2% of GDP on defense, right? So mm -hmm. there's going to continue to be this damaging drip drip. But again, from what I understand, the intelligence community is not freaking out because it was not, as one person said, the crown jewels of our intelligence gathering systems, whereas Snowden revealed systems that really, I mean, the intelligence community had to like reinvent the way it did things after that. Mm -hmm. This guy, while revealing some interesting tidbits, isn't revealing that. And the State Department is like, eh, we're fine. The DOD is kind of freaking out because it's their leak and it's mm -hmm. their stuff that's being kind of blown up in front of the public. But mm -hmm. still, it doesn't seem to be as bad as Chelsea Manning or Edward Snowden. Well, that makes me feel better about it. But it shouldn't make Jack Teixeira feel better about it because he's looking at a long time I mean, time it's in still prison. bad. I mean, that's the thing is it's still bad. It's just not 
the sky is falling horrific. Right, right. But yeah, he is going to spend a long, long time in prison, unfortunately. A long time until we can see him take uh, another iconic selfie, like the one that's gone viral of him. Uh, Julia, (laughs) have a great weekend. Thank you so much. Everyone go read her piece on Puck about the intelligence leak from the Pentagon. Thanks, Peter. When we come back, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about Larry Ellison and the GOP. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back to The Powers That Be. I'm Ben Landy, joined by Teddy Schleifer. Hey, Teddy. Hi, thanks for having me. Teddy, it's been a bad month for any Republican presidential candidates who are not Donald Trump. Mike Pompeo preemptively threw in the towel. Glenn Youngkin says he's focused on the Virginia legislative elections, although, you know, maybe that'll change later. He'll get in late. DeSantis has just been getting walloped with negative headlines, nasty press, including from his own donors. But then there is Tim Scott who is also, he's polling, he's around 1%, but he's got the Silicon Valley sugar daddy, Larry Ellison, in his corner. And I know we've talked about this weird Ellison-Scott relationship before on the podcast, but I wanted to drill down here a little bit because this sort of bromance between the donor and donee really explains so much about how modern campaigns work. So first of all, let's talk about this $35 million number. This is how much Ellison has put into a pro Tim Scott super PAC. It sounds like a lot of money, but it's also a drop in the bucket of a presidential campaign. Can you just give us a little bit more context in terms of what a modern campaign actually costs and what $35 million can buy? Sure. So that's a great way to to frame kind of any donation because the amount of money that, that gets spent can look as big or as small as you want. So the 2020 election, which, you know, including all the money spent up and down the ballot last presidential cycle was about $14 billion. That includes everything from a $27 donation to Bernie Sanders to a big check from Michelle Nadelson to Mike Bloomberg, who spent about a billion dollars on his own on his presidential campaign. That includes hard dollars that are raised by official campaign committees. That includes so-called soft dollars that are raised by independent expenditure groups, otherwise you know, considered like super PACs. 
So $35 million um, that was given to Scott Super PAC over the last two cycles by this one guy. When you put judge it against that, looks pretty small. But when you judge it against, you know, the history of kind of political contributions uh, made by individual people, it's massive. Like, you know, the amount that Scott uh, has raked in from Ellison is certainly one of the biggest uh, displays of monetary support that have ever been seen in modern politics. The word modern here is important because, like, the game changed 13 years ago uh, with the Citizens United decision when, you know, which really unleashed this kind of modern era of political spending and made it possible for someone like Larry Allison to spend so much on behalf of Tim Scott. Previously, that wasn't possible, at least in kind of how we think about campaigns today. So we're we're in a new era, and the amount of money that's being spent is going to keep on going up and up and up. And the amount that donors can spend and how they do it um, is only going to get more complicated, more creative, and, and bolder. So this is a new era. Teddy, you've been talking to a lot of people in Larry Ellison's circle, people who know him. Do you get a sense that $35 million is just a taste of the money that he might eventually be willing to shell out for Tim Scott? Or is it like, here's your seed money, now go out and prove that you've got what it takes to actually be a genuine player in this race on your own? Because that is sort of how Peter Thiel, for instance, treated his candidates, Blake Masters right. and J.D. Vance, in the Senate races last midterm. He, he gave them a ton of money early in the primaries, and then he just kind of backed away. He said, I've done my part, now you've got to do the rest. Yeah, so the context for the donations around Scott, who was up for re-election like nominally in 2022, was that these groups were set up by kind of former Scott aides. The group's called Opportunity Matters Fund or Opportunity Matters Network. There are a couple of related C4s and super PACs. But they were set up to bolster... Tim Scott's allies, I guess you could say. You know, they were, I don't think they actually spent any money in the actual Tim Scott South Carolina re-election run, but Ellison funded candidates that Scott was supporting. So Republican incumbents mostly, or Republicans, you know, who were the official party establishment. I don't think they played in any primaries. They spent a lot of money for like Herschel Walker in, uh, in Georgia, who was uh, an Ellison favorite. Uh, they transferred money to the Senate Leadership Fund, which was, you know, kind of the main McConnell super PAC. So... The, the context of there was just that Tim Scott is, you know, an ambitious, you know, inspirational uh, young senator who wants to elect other Republicans. Like Scott was obviously not a presidential candidate. But obviously, at the same time, Scott been testing the waters about running for president himself. And cynics will look at, for instance, money that the super PAC spent in like Iowa, right, and, and think, is Tim Scott gaining gaining favor there? But more broadly, like it, w- it was a way for Scott to— uh, be a team player. And the amount of money that that $35 million represents someone like Larry Ellison, who's worth currently $100 billion and is the sixth richest person in the world, that's a pretty small amount of money. And it makes you think that now that Scott actually is running for president, and Ellison has been well aware of the fact that Scott was going to run for president. He's telling friends that he wants Scott to run for president, and he's gotten his wish. Now that Scott is exploring it formally, as of last week, you know, I would be surprised if we didn't see another 35. I reported my story that published this week that, that Larry doesn't really have a figure in mind. He's not told people privately that he's going to be spending X million or, or Y million. But he's very emotional in a kind of haphazard way, but also in like a, he just falls hard for for his loves. Um, you know, he like loves Bibi Netanyahu. He loved Marco Rubio. And the, the amount he's going to spend for, for Scott kind of depends on that relationship, you know, sugar daddy to, to sugar child. Um, and uh, I would be I would be surprised if we didn't see another 35, if not more. 
Yeah, that's so interesting. There, there is this question of the, the appetite or the pain threshold for spending money, potentially lighting your money on fire. At the same time, Tay, what are the sort of limits to what money can buy? I mean, you have to expect some level of backlash when you have an extremely wealthy donor like Larry Ellison potentially bankrolling a single candidate. At some point, the optics are just so bad. And, and then you take a candidate like Tim Scott, who's got a really great story to tell, and eventually he just starts to look like a pawn or a pet project for Larry Ellison. Yeah, the the, the optics are, are something that donors always worry about. I'm not convinced, though, that the, the it's a net negative at this point. I, I mean, I covered, for instance, Peter Thiel's bets last cycle um, that you referenced pretty closely. And like Republican primary rivals, and certainly during the general election, the rivals of Blake Masters and J.D. Vance, like all the rivals tried to make like Peter Thiel into an issue. Like, I don't know if it really caught on. Um, You know, I remember Tim Ryan, you know, trying to rake J.D. over that. And Blake during the primary got some shit from his Republican primary rivals about Peter. Look, I think connections to to billionaire donors are, are, you know, somewhat negative, but the, the there's still a lot of juice in the lemon that pays off. You know, Ellison, you know, is I guess if he does end up being this kind of outsized figure in the, in the primary, like I argue he will be, you know, definitely should get ready for his close-up. You know, he, he bought a private island in Hawaii, I think, in 2013, and is basically kind of living his life in relative privacy. Like, you know, I remember there was a story a couple a couple of weeks ago or maybe around the Christmas time where, like, Ellison was, like, pulled over in Hawaii um, by a cop on the island that he owns, and there was, some, you know, an audio recording of him you know, saying sorry for speeding officer, but like that's the sort those are the sort of stories you see about Larry Ellison these days. Now, like if he's spending, you know, $40 million or $50 million on the presidential election, like there's gonna be a hell of a lot of reporters like investigating every connection between Ellison and Scott. Like, you know, he's going to be a huge figure that's just kind of table stakes. So I don't, I don't know if Ellison's ready for that. Um, you know, he, he obviously has been the public eye for a long time. He's been scrutinized. Like, it's not as if people are going to discover like, Oh, I had no idea that Larry, Larry Ellison had a lot of like wives. Like you know, he's had a, a rocky personal life, or that he you know owns a you know a yacht racing uh, event in, in California, or owns you know a, a wellness retreat in Hawaii. Like that's not those aren't the scoops I'm talking about. Like I think there's going to be political scrutiny on Larry Ellison that he has not seen since he was like battling over antitrust with with Bill Gates in the '90s. You mentioned in your reporting the other day that there are a lot of doubts among people in Ellison's immediate orbit about whether he actually has the strategic or tactical wherewithal to operationalize his money for Scott. Can you give some examples of what that would actually look like, or or maybe some other donors who have been much more involved at the operational level? You know, Ben, sometimes I get asked that question by other donors, which I find always a little bit strange. Definitely not my job. But there there are a few people who jump to mind as Republican mega-donors who have successfully operationalized. The first one is Paul Singer, the founder of the activist hedge fund Elliott Management, who set up, along with a few other Wall Street types, an organization called the American Opportunity Alliance, or AOA, which is sort of a pro-Israel, you know, socially moderate, pro-economic deregulation donor network, um, which often hosts uh, Republican primary and general election candidates uh, in New York for sort of sessions. And, and Singer... Beyond that is, is like a workhorse. Um, he's known for, in Republican donor circles for not only being kind of a big donor, but he also bundles. And, and the difference there for folks who are new to this is basically Larry Ellison can give $35 million to a super PAC, but then there's also the hard work of getting other wealthy people to make contributions to campaigns directly. And those contributions are capped 
at certain contribution limits. But if you bundle, which basically is the art of getting other wealthy people to cut maximum contributions to the campaign directly, if you bundle, you can actually raise, you know, maybe not 35 million, but a couple million for a candidate of your choice. I mean, the secret or the dirty little secret of bundling is like the people who are claim to be bundling or actually often just outsourcing it to their aides. <laughs> um, so you you hire other people, lobbyists, donor advisors to basically bundle for you. Um, that's very common in both parties. You know, you you don't want to see a scenario where if you're if you're a friend of Larry Ellison's where he spends, you know, fifty million dollars in various harebrained ways to like watch Tim Scott, you know, in a Des Moines ballroom, you know, at one percent, having wasted millions of dollars of the guy's money. So operationalizing it is, is, is important, allegedly, you know, I mean, I know, I know cynics would say that, you know, these are all just operatives looking for a cut of the, of, of the money. But the conventional wisdom I'll say is that having professionals around you helps. Right. And in Ellison's case, he's basically just handing off a pile of money, a suitcase full of cash to the Tim Scott super PAC. He's outsourcing that work to them. Ted, who's actually running things over there at the, at the, the Scott super PAC? Who's in charge? Is it anyone of note? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting mix of people. Um, there are a few different super PACs that have started up over the last couple of years. Probably the most notable one is, is Corey Gardner, who is, of course, not an operative, but is the former uh, U.S. senator from Colorado who lost uh, a closely watched Senate race a few years ago. You know, Gardner, it's funny, you know, you go, you go from being just a, ran, you know, a, a U.S. senator to being a random operative who uh, has to deal with people like me. There's a couple other former Scott aides. Um, Jennifer DeCasper is probably the most famous one who uh, are now uh, managing the Scott outside groups. But it, it's a mix of, I think all of these people could be considered, quote unquote, Scott allies, to put it in, in, uh, in journalist speak. People who are aligned with him, frankly, may have been chosen by him to run the outside groups until recently, you know, could even talk to Scott um, or could even talk to any candidate. But they're all folks who come from from his orbit. Well, I hope these guys are paying themselves a nice salary while the Ellison money is flowing. Teddy, thanks for joining us. I'll see you next time. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.